0: of of that in the bulletin, and that's very kind of them. I'm very, very thankful uh, to them for that. Uh, But in the last two months, you have fed us, you have moved us down from a third-story apartment and into a two-story house. You have given us groceries, you have given us gift cards, you have given us flowers, and you have given us help of all kinds. We had someone even take our trash Out for us. Uh, We have felt the appreciation and we are we are grateful for it. But I would like to add something that's from me. It's my own appreciation, as it were. Um, There are three other people on this uh, staff that labor with me in teaching and for which I am incredibly grateful. David Williams, Tom Allen, And Jeremy Hudson. David is the interim music minister here, but I couldn't ask for a better guy to partner with in putting together the worship service. When we uh, came here in view of a call, it was the Saturday before I preached. David came up to me and asked me, are you going to wear a suit tomorrow? I didn't know how to take that question, but I said, I wasn't planning on it. (laughs) And he said, okay, I won't either then. And I didn't even think about that at the time, nor would I have disparaged him for wearing a suit, but he didn't want to call attention to himself and would rather have had that, that day uh, to strictly focus on me preaching in view of a call. And since I've been here, there hasn't been a nicer person to work with. He's been so gracious to me coming in as a new pastor and so willing to um, shape the service um, and, and not insist upon his own way. And he has served this church well, and for him, I am very grateful. Tom Allen is a doer in every sense of the word. Uh, If I needed help in the middle of the night, I know that I could depend on Tom. I've seen him care for the sick. I've seen him reach out to those in need. I've seen him visit the widows and care for the marginalized. He truly does love the people of this church. He is a black-and-white thinker, which has been tremendously helpful for me, getting acclimated to the culture of Emmanuel Baptist Church. In just a couple of short months, he has become an incredibly valuable part of our team and is indispensable to me. Jeremy Hudson loves students of all stripes, 6th grade through college, and his deepest desire is not only to follow Christ himself, but for them to follow Christ with zeal. He's away right now this very weekend at a youth fall retreat, and he'll be coming back tonight so you can pray for them. But he has a thirst for the Word of God and living righteously himself. And parents, I cannot think of a better example of Christlikeness for your teenagers and for your kids than Jeremy Hudson. He's not one that's ever cared to have a big name for himself or for anyone to think much of him. All he wants is for people to know Christ and to make him known. And what a privilege it is to know him and have him on our staff. For all three of them, I am very grateful. And I would appreciate it if you would take a moment at some point in your day to show them how much you care for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am grateful for these co-laborers that you have put around me I'm grateful for their attitude and for their spirit I'm grateful for all that they have done to help facilitate ministry here for me I pray Lord that we could show them in the coming days kindness we can appreciate them for the work that they put in on a weekly basis Lord I pray that as we turn now to your word Christ would be magnified in what we say and what we think and then afterward what we do. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Open your bibles if you have them to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. If you don't have a bible on the pew back in front of you there should be a black bible. You can turn to page 984. If you really don't have a bible uh, not just that it's not with you, but you literally don't have one, take that. It's our gift to you. I have not run that by anybody, but I'm, I'm guessing that it's going to be okay. Uh, I'm not talking about if you got one crumpled up in the backseat of your car. I'm talking about, like, I don't have one. Okay, uh, take that one. It's a gift to you. Um, to, to many of you in this room, I am, I'm still very young, and, and I get it. In the grand scheme of things, I'm 34 years old. And I, and I understand that that in, in, in the overall picture, that is, that is really pretty young. But I've noticed a couple of things that are beginning to change in me as I get a little bit older. And, and, and first, this occurred to me when it, when it rained outside. I knew that I had become adult, an adult when I looked outside and I saw that it was raining. See, when you're a kid and it rains, it bums you out. You don't get to play outside, you know? Uh, when you're a teenager or maybe even just driving and you're not an adult, you, it, you know, it ruins your plans and you have to kind of change all the things that you were, you were planning. But I noticed that I had become an adult when I looked outside and it was raining and I said, well, we need it. <laughs> right? That is when you've crossed the threshold into adulthood when you think about your grass and how much benefit... <laughs> your grass is getting because of the rain, or, you know, the lakes are drying up. Uh, we, need the, we need the rain. Uh, welcome to adulthood, you know. Uh, the other thing that I've started to notice is that there's one phrase that I'm, I'm growing to use more frequently, and that's uh, knowing what I know now. And it's usually followed by a lot of other things, but you say, you know, knowing what I know now. And when you're just starting out in life, you don't know anything. And so you're just, you're just learning it all for the first time. But when you, I've noticed like when you cross at about 30-ish, you've already had your first series of swings and misses. And now you're, they're coming back around again. And, and, and I realize there's a lot of mistakes to be had in the future, but you're starting to see these same opportunities and options and things presented to you now for a second time. And you're starting to make decisions differently because now you know after having made the mistake the first time. It, it seems that you've, or it assumes that you've seen this thing before, right? N- knowing what I know now, I would choose differently. Knowing how the story ends, knowing how this thing, all this thing plays out, and knowing now that I know how this thing ends, I will make different choices the next time this comes around. That here and now will be much different. When this comes around again. As an example, one time in the middle of a Texas summer, uh, my neighbor comes knocking on our door late at night. It was about 11 o'clock at night, and she says, your your air conditioner is making a really funny noise. Now, I didn't know what I know now then, (laughs) all right? So I panicked. I cut off the A.C. I called the guy, the only guy that would come at 2 o'clock in the morning, To fix my AC because it was making a funny noise. Now the only reason that I have one kidney today is because I had to sell the other to pay him (laughs) before he left. Knowing what I know now, (laughs) the outcome will be much different the next time. Over the last few weeks, we've been discussing Christ's sufficiency in all things. And in fact... Even from the very beginning of Colossians, Paul's laid out this incredibly strong argument to the Colossians for who they are in Christ. This is who you are in Christ. He's told us that you are reconciled to God through Christ Jesus and that by virtue of our faith in Him, we have been transformed and transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And he has challenged us to keep our minds focused on this very fact, focused on the kingdom of God. Now, we've called this series Heavenly Minded, and you'll remember the definition that I put forward at the very beginning of this series. It's to have one's thoughts governed by the attitudes and affections of the very Spirit of God. Well, Paul's going to close out the first half of the book today. This is the end of the first half of the book. Where he's been laying out mostly doctrine. And he's been showing us what's theologically true about Christians. What is true of you as a Christian. Well, in this short little four-verse passage, this is going to be our bridge. It's going to close out the first section reminding us who we are in Christ. And then it'll connect us to our next section where we'll start to see a lot in a lot more practical way what that means for us. So Paul will close out this section and he's going to remind us who Christ is. He's going to send us into the next section where, where we'll be challenged to live as heavenly-minded Christians. And much like how we began this series back at the very beginning, we started by applying it directly to our church, we're going to be challenged now to kind of do essentially a little temperature check of seeing where we're at, how are we doing as a corporate church body being heavenly-minded. It's not only a time for us to look at the here and now, but to look at the future and actually be able to say, knowing what the outcome of this story is, knowing what we know now, how are we living as heavenly-minded Christians? Look with me at our text, Colossians 3, chapter one, uh, verses 1-4. through four. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. In these four verses, there are two commands that Paul is going to give to us. The first one is in verse 1, and the second one is in verse 2. And then at the very end of this passage, in verse 4... He's going to give us really a, a challenge that sort of lays the foundation for the two commands that He's already given to us in 1 and 2. So all of this is pushing us to be heavenly-minded Christians with what we know to be true about Christ. Alright, the central question that I want us to wrestle with this morning, central question that I want us to think about, how is heavenly-mindedness demonstrated to the world around us? How is our heavenly mindedness as a church body demonstrated to the world around us? The first answer that Paul gives us is that it's demonstrated in what we value. It's demonstrated in what we value. Look closer at verse 1. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So all of this is grounded in our union with Christ. Remember, we've been talking about, uh, for the last couple of weeks, Paul has brought to our attention a few times now the fact that our faith in Christ is Unites us to him. It's united us to Christ. And what that means is that he represents us now before God. So Adam represents the whole human race. Adam is the representative of the whole human race. So when he fell, when he took a sinful step, we all took that sinful step. We all fell with him. And we're all judged by virtue of his choice as our head he represented us now in Jesus Christ by having faith in Jesus Christ Jesus now is also our representative through faith this is why Jesus himself he tells Nicodemus in in John chapter 3 that you must be born again and Nicodemus has no idea why he would say that or why he would use those terms. He doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. Well, our first birth means that Adam is our representative and we've fallen and we're dead with Adam. We, we reap the deadly consequences of Adam's sin. But now, being born again by faith in Christ, Christ now represents us in God's new kingdom. Jesus is now our representative. So Paul's picking up on this in Colossians, and he's challenging us as believers in Jesus Christ to not be caught up in the trappings of the world, in all the things that the world has offered. The world is going to perish. It's going to die. It's going to to burn. And for those that have maintained faith in Jesus Christ, you now have a hope that is beyond this world. You have been united to Christ. He died physically. He came into Adam's world and died physically. And then you died that death with him. He died the death that you deserved. He already died that death. And then he was resurrected. And if you believe in him, if you are united to him, that is the resurrection that you are going to experience as well. In the previous passage that we read last week, Paul said, if with Christ you died, and then he went on to talk to us about legalism and the the legalistic tendencies that make up a lot of religion, and he's saying, he's making the point that if you died with Christ, those things don't hold sway over you anymore. You are part of a new kingdom. You are a citizen of a brand new world that God is creating, that he is invading this earth with. Those things don't hold sway over you anymore if you died with Christ. Now he's giving the other side of that. He says, if you have been raised with Christ. So if you died with Christ last week, now if you have been raised with Christ. And what follows is how we should live now as citizens of this new kingdom. If we are truly united with Christ and if we are citizens of this new kingdom, it should change the way we live. If we are tied to his resurrection, that means that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Amen. So Paul's making a logical argument here. And think about this for a second. And this may be a new thought for some of you if, you, if you've never thought about this before. Just, just follow with me. If Christ resurrected... He got up from the grave bodily, and then what happened to him? He went away. He went away. He's gone. He now sits at the right hand of God. And Paul tells us that at the very end of verse 1. He sits now at the right hand of God. He's, He's away. He's not here. Jesus Christ, at this very moment, is sitting on his throne in his kingdom, ruling heaven and earth. Now, Paul's argument is that if you're a Christian, you are there with him. And of course, I think if Paul were here and he was telling us all this, we would some brave soul in here, maybe, would probably raise your hand, and he, he might call on you, and you would say, uh, 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 Paul, um, I'm not with Jesus. I am here. I'm on, I'm on earth. And Paul would say, I think you might be physically here in this very moment, but you are present in God's eternal kingdom because that's where Christ is. And if you're tied to him, he is your representative. There's a little bit of a correlation between that and the American political system. It's, a, it's different, but there, there's a little bit of correlation. We have a representative democracy. So it means we elect people, and they go uh, and represent us in Washington, D.C., or Montgomery, as it were, locally on the state level. So in some respects, you are in Washington, D.C. If you are a citizen of the United States of America, you are in Washington, D.C. right now, arguing over health care and walls and who knows what. Not doing your job. That's, no, I'm just kidding. I'm teasing. <laughs> We're not going there. All right. uh, That's not not what this is about. Uh, (laughs) We don't have enough time. Um, But (laughs) the point is that you are there. uh, Your representative is there on your behalf. He is representing you. So for every one person that's there in Congress, there are multitudes that that person is representing, representing. He is doing things on your behalf. Now it's at least somewhat similar to the argument that Paul is making here in the text that you're in heaven because Christ is there as your representative but there's there's one there's many differences but there's at least one massive difference that Jesus is not only your representative he is everyone's representative he's the only representative but not only that he's not just a representative he is the king See, he's sitting there at the end of verse 1. You look look there at the end of verse 1. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He is sitting in the seat of power. That phrase, seated at the right hand of God, means that he is executing. He is ruling with the authority of God the Father. And he is working on your behalf. So Paul gives us this first command. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. And when Paul says to seek the things above, he means that to act according to what has eternal value. What are the things that has have eternal value? You are to act accordingly. But Paul makes clear that what the what has eternal value is what's valuable in the kingdom of God. But he also makes clear that the only things that have value have eternal value, and the only things that have eternal value are the things that Christ has deemed valuable. Amen. And why? Because He is seated at the right hand of God. To, to put it simply, because of Christ's authority as head of the church, and because of His position at the right hand of God, what He says is valuable are the things that we should pursue. Let's go back for a second to the American political system. Imagine if you were to say, my representative is so good in representing me before Congress, if he says that he's going to overturn Roe v. Wade, close all the abortion clinics. Go ahead. Start closing them down right at this very moment because my representative is that good. Paul's saying, look, Christ has resurrected from the dead. You are with him in heaven. All that he has done, is doing, and will do in the future is a slam dunk. So start living that way right at this very moment because you are already in his kingdom. Because even though you're not fully there yet bodily, you are there already in Christ so that means that the things that Christ values are the things that you and I are to seek after. It's set in stone policy. You are to seek after those things right at this very moment. You are to live out the values of Christ's kingdom in the here and now. Yes. Here and now. now. As an example of those values, Jesus told us when he left, make disciples. We don't have to argue about what are the things that are valuable. We don't have to have a long discussion about what things are valuable. Jesus told us when he left. People, disciples, worshipers of God are valuable. Missions is about bringing people into the worship of God. And so that's never on display more in a church when they engage in church planting. When they engage in doing the work of God in the world around them. One of the things that initially drew Andrea and I to Emmanuel Baptist Church was when we saw that you had already already began working on planting a church in Portland, Oregon. I've prayed for years, even up to the point of Deciding that I I was going to move into pastoral ministry, I've prayed for years that I would be able to pastor a church whose heart was for church planting, for training people up to be pastors, to send them out and to plant churches around these United States. And when I saw from a distance that Emmanuel Baptist Church was already establishing Bridge City Church in Portland, Oregon, in the darkest place on the whole planet. I knew the Lord was drawing us here, Mm -hmm. that it was an answer to prayer. Mm -hmm. You know why this is the case? Because there's nothing more evident in Scripture that God has chosen to spread the gospel through the establishing of churches. That's how he has chosen to push back the darkness and redeem people is through the local church. Paul tells us in Ephesians four eleven to twelve, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. When Christ left the earth, what did he give? What did he give to the people that he left? He gave them people that went about telling the gospel and then gathering them together in a local body under the headship of a pastor for the purpose of building up that body and training and equipping them for the work of ministry. That's what that's saying there. He gave to them the church. He gave them pastors over the local body. The church is Christ's gift. And it's the way he has chosen to make disciples in the world. This is the pinnacle of a kingdom value. And listen, a church demonstrates that it's heavenly minded when it values the things that Christ values. Truth be told, EBC could use the money. Who couldn't? We could use the money that we're giving away to Bridge City. Everybody could. But I was amazed even to see from a distance the dedication toward these kingdom values that basically pushes back against what the world says are our physical needs. Instead, we're saying, you know what? We'd rather accomplish what the Lord has put us here to do. And do you realize where you have planted this church in Portland, Oregon, it is no doubt, in my mind, the darkest place on this entire earth, without exception. It's darker, I think, than London or Paris, France. People in Syria and Iraq, Pakistan and China are coming to Christ in droves, even though there is persecution. Amen. The people, There's people in Portland that have never even thought about whether God exists. Never even a question that entered their mind. It's dark. I was actually able to talk to Chris this week. I didn't call him, didn't reach out to him in any way. He literally called me while I was writing this. And we were able to talk. Chris is the, person, the pastor of the church in Bridge City. And I'm glad for the work that he is doing, that God is doing through him in Portland, through them in Portland. I'm going to bring him in in a couple of weeks. He's going to share with you some of the things that are going on. I'm very excited about some of the changes that are, going, that are coming, coming down the pike. But a heavenly-minded church demonstrates its heavenly-mindedness in what it values. So that's definitely going to be putting our money where our mouth is. It's definitely going to be establishing the things that we value with our finances. But it's also more than that. It's about growing in righteousness. It's about establishing a church that can be an open community where we can grow not only by studying God's word, but that we can also be comfortable with one another. We can be comfortable going to one another and pointing out where we see wickedness creeping up in others, where we're not tolerating gossip and backbiting, but confronting it and praying for others to confront it when they see it in us. And you can see that when that happens, the community of this church becomes a very peculiar bunch, it becomes strange to the outside world, it becomes evident in our actions when we value the things that Christ values. Second, it's demonstrated in how we think. He, look at what he says in verses two and three setting your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This command that he gives here in verses two and three is very similar to the command he gives us in verse one. Uh, the first command he says, uh, "Seek the things that are above," and, and but that's really in regards to what you value. There are are actions that you're taking because of the things that you value. I value these things, therefore, I'm going and I'm doing this. You're seeking it. You're going after it. The command that he gives us in verse 2 is really about a mindset, a way that you're thinking. Set your minds on the things that are above. Decide right now in your brains on the things that are above. The idea is really about how you think about life. We might call this your worldview, how you interpret the things that are happening in your life. Now, certainly the two are connected. If you're thinking right, then typically your values are going to be set in the right place, and you're going to, you're going to go after those. But there is a subtle difference. Remember what Jesus says to, to Peter in Matthew 16, 23. Uh, it's right after Peter confesses, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, that, that's exactly right. You're, you're, you're spot on there, Peter. And then Jesus tells Peter, you know, now I'm going to go die on the cross. And Peter is like, wait a minute. And he, t- he takes a step back and he says, no, that'll never happen. You'll never die. Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for, here it is, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." So, so you see what's happening in the story. Peter is responding to Jesus, going to the cross, and he's saying, look, no, uh, that can't happen, because he's only considering how Jesus' ministry benefits him. You can't go to the cross. I'm supposed to rule with you. I want to sit next to you on your throne. I want to be there with you. We're going to rule together. He wants to rule with Jesus, and sorry, Jesus, if, if I'm going to rule with you, you dying does not accomplish that goal in my mind. Jesus tells him, You've got your mind set on something. Now, it's a negative example here. Peter has his mind set on the things of man, and what we're told is, Set your mind on the things of God instead. Big difference. But you can see what it would mean then to set your minds on the things of God, to have your worldview shaped. By eternal matters rather than the temporal matters here. So really, verse 2 logically precedes verse 1. You're thinking first, what is God's understanding of this situation? What is His view of this situation? You're setting your mind on it. How does God want me to interpret this situation here? And then seeking it would be going after it. Once I've set my mind on it. Why would you consider this? Why would you first want to think, what is God doing here? Well, because Paul says right there at the end of, in verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. One of the worst kinds of insults that anybody can ever really give is, uh, you're dead to me, right? Now, people use it as a kind of a joke nowadays, but the meaning of you're dead to me is that all the decisions that you could possibly make, everything that you could possibly think, your opinions, all the things that you value are of literally no consequence to me anymore. I don't care anything about your existence. Well, Paul is basically saying the same thing except the other way around. You are dead to the world. All of its trappings have literally no influence on you. The values that influence the thoughts and opinions of worldly people are not the kinds of things that influence you. There's a a kind of pressure on parents to push their kids to excel. And some parents just want their kids to fit in, but I think it's part of the same ball of wax, so to speak. We'll, We'll push them to be their best drive them to excel, maybe at a sport or an activity of some kind. And when we start off, it's really just something that's benign. We enjoy it because they enjoy it. We really want to just see them succeed in it. We want to see them be happy and do something that they really enjoy. But then all of a sudden, this monster of an activity is dominating all of our calendars, occupying all of our time, everywhere we go. The family schedule is dominated by it and we're running ragged to and from just trying to juggle all of the activities. I've talked to parents who just complain and complain and complain about the fact that they don't have any time because of the rigorous schedule of their kids, they have very little time to sit around the table as a family and eat together, much less enjoy any kind of thing like family devotionals or, or pray together or any of those kinds of things. And so when I say to them, well, we'll just stop it. Just, just stop it. You made that schedule. Now you're dominated by it. Just stop it. Just pull the plug on the whole thing. They look at me like I've got three heads. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, just stop it. You made it. We act like someone else created our schedule. No, that's not true. You set your mind on something. You determined that it was valuable. And then you sought after it. That schedule is a product of your values. There are things that the world values and there's a way of thinking that goes along with that value system. But that way of thinking and that value system are dead to me. They're dead to me. Or better yet, I died to it. I see its end. I see where it's going and knowing what I know now, I will make different decisions in the future based on what I know. It has finality. It is going to die. There is literally no eternal value in it. Not only that, but I see inside my house that I have four eternal souls besides myself that I'm responsible for to lead and to shepherd and to grow so that they too see the value of the kingdom of God over all things. So that we all become heavenly minded. Amen. Now sports and school and all of those things play a part in that. They can anyway. They can play a part in that. But am I thinking... In the sports and the activities in the schools of helping my children see the tie-in to the eternal value? See how those things are actually building in them Christ-likeness? Am I helping them process how these things help them to know Christ better? Or are these activities just a way of sending my kid away so that they either fit in in school or make me look better as a parent? If I haven't given any thought to that, If I haven't thought about how I'm shepherding them through these activities, and I'm certainly not training them in Christ-likeness. I'm certainly not training them to set their minds on the things above. How is learning an instrument to the glory of God? There are plenty of ways. Are you helping your children to see that? How is kicking a ball or submitting to a coach, a leader, Joining into a team, to the glory of God, there are plenty of ways, but are you helping your kids see that? They're not born with that knowledge. And if there's no eternal value, maybe the schedule has just dominated your life, and now there is just literally no eternal value to be seen, it's just struggling for error, then it shouldn't be done. Amen. No matter how much the world values it. No matter how important it was to our family at one point. The same would be true of choosing a career path or picking a college major as a christian if my mind is set on the things above then i'm not strictly tied to choose those career paths that make me happy that's not the only choice that's not the only factor in the equation there are many factors at work in that decision is this career field going to require at times that i compromise my integrity have i talked to people that are there have they told me that there are times where they've had to compromise their integrity? Is this career path so going to dominate my life that it's going to lead me to forsake my family and the raising of my children? Am I going to be able to lead my family the way the Lord wants me to lead them if I choose this path? Now, thoughts like that had never occurred to me until I was in my first year of seminary. Not once had they ever occurred to me. A professor walked in, On the first day, he's handing out the syllabus, and we have tons of syllabus shock. That's when you read the syllabus and you realize there's no way, there's enough hours in the day to actually accomplish what has been given to me. All the professors in here know exactly what I'm talking about. You're the culprit, all right, for syllabus shock. (laughs) The professor goes through the syllabus and he says, how many of you in this room have a wife or a spouse? So some of us raised our hands. He said, how many of you in this room have children, a few few others had raised their hand. I put mine down, obviously. He said, you need to really consider whether or not it would be sinful for you to make an A in this class. It will require so much time and so much work that most likely your wife will be a widow and your children will be orphans. And honestly, it's just not that important. That was the happiest day of my life. I went home and I told my, my wife, I'm like, he, it's, it's a blow-off class. He practically just told me, don't worry about this class. I'm doing it for you, baby. <laughs> and so, I'm doing this for you. I'm slacking off only, <laughs> only for you. The truth is that in, in thinking about the things above, it's going to cause us to process all kinds of things around us differently. It's going to cause us in some cases to be very strange to the people that come over to our house or that observe these actions. Well, the church then is really a collection, a coming together of people that are, who are the sum total of people that individually are living lives devoted to the kingdom. They're now coming together in, in, in heavenly mindedness, in love, submitting to one another, outdoing one another in honor and choosing paths for the whole collection of the church based on the values of God's kingdom. Our heavenly mindedness is is demonstrated to the world in the things that we value and the way that we think. Last, it's demonstrated in our hope. It's demonstrated in our hope. Look at how Paul closes this section in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also, you also will appear with him in glory. Now it's certainly an odd way to speak. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. What does that mean? Well, because Christ is our representative head, he is our head, because he is the figure who represents us on our behalf, and we have no eternal life outside of Christ, Paul calls Jesus our life. Imagine if someone was in the hospital and they were on life support. There, something is, is breathing for them. Something is circulating their blood. There's a tube going in and actually feeding them. All of this is keeping them alive. We would look at them and we would say, they're on life support. Well, we might actually tell them, if we could, we might say to them, these machines are your life. In other words, if they fail, you fail. Period. Well, similarly... Christ is our life. Simply put, without Jesus living a perfect life and facing the wrath of God on my behalf, I am dead in my trespasses and sins. Absolutely. Jesus puts it like this in John three thirty-six: Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So there are two groups of people in this world. Those on whom the wrath of God remains and those who have Christ as their substitute for the wrath of God. That's it. Those two groups, those are the only two that exist. And it's only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that the wrath of God could be satisfied. Therefore, Christ is my life. But then look at what Paul says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he's saying that the reason we have a different set of values and the different way of thinking is because we have a different hope, plain and simple. We have a different hope. We don't have hope in this life only. We have hope in a new life to come. So let's be clear. Paul isn't being metaphorical here. He isn't being funny. He's saying that Christ, who currently resides in heaven, who is there, who is seated at the right hand of of the Father, as he told us in verse 1, he will literally, physically reappear coming down from heaven. And when that happens, we, that is his church, will be, if we are dead, resurrected and transformed. If we are living, just transformed. All of the dead and living will be transformed who are in Christ. We'll have bodies that are fit for eternity, to never perish. We won't get sick. If you want to see what that resurrected body looks like as it interacts with the world around us, just look at the stories of Christ's resurrection. That's exactly what we're anticipating, literally and physically. Now, the world thinks that's preposterous. That's just silly. Some people in the church think that's silly. But do you understand what Paul's saying? If you think that's silly, then your thoughts and your values will never be governed by the things of God. Because in your mind, this life, when you die, is over, that nothing happens when you die. If that's your thought process, then take that football and run as fast as you can and keep running and keep practicing and keep being driven by it because this is all you get. You only live once. But if your thoughts and mindset are governed by a different hope, then you realize that that kingdom is one day going to fully dominate this world. And so it's worth living for. Some of the pleasures then of this life are just not worth having. In fact, many of the pleasures are just not worth having. We're delaying the gratification for the world to come. The Christian should know better. He should know that I'm living right now for eternity And I think there's going to be a real existence where Christ returns that's going to be very much like this existence except without sin. Sin completely removed from the equation. Perfect in every single way. And I'm not living for praise and I'm not living for attaboys. The only thing that I care about is to hear Jesus Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant. That is what I'm living for. The reason that we think and the reason that we act in ways that don't make sense to the world is because we believe that there is life after death, plain and simple. It's the foundation of our hope. And we not only believe that there is life after death, but that eternal life can only be found in Jesus Christ alone. And that hope must shape the way that we think and the the things that we value in this world. That's true of individuals, but that's true of us as a collection, as a church body. We have a business meeting coming up on Wednesday. My first here at this church. It's for members only. So if you're a member of this church, I would encourage you to come and be a part. We have a chance to put into practice what we say we believe we not only have a chance to truly be people of the book not just that we read the book but that we actually live by it we'll be able to rejoice over two people coming as candidates for membership of the body we'll have the opportunity to pray together for wisdom and prudence on how to guide this church how to lead this church and how to go forward into the community around us and we'll have the opportunity to bet on the advancement of god's kingdom to bet until our hands bleed that this is true and that it will one day dominate the entire world. We have a chance, an opportunity to bet on that. And some people will, as the world watches, may ask or may think, y'all are crazy. And that's okay. Because Christ, who is our life, when He appears, we will be vindicated. And we may even be able to hear people ask, Why do y'all go away so often on missions? Why do you give so much to missions? Why do you plant churches across the United States? And you can tell them, knowing what we know now, that Christ is going to come back and only the work in his kingdom will last. Knowing what we know now, we wouldn't have it any other way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, for this church. Pray for the foundation which we stand on, be Christ alone. That that's evident in the things that we value and the choices we make. I pray that people would see us as peculiar. That it would give us an opportunity to say exactly why we are so peculiar. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't waver in the midst of pressure from the culture, even from finances, that we would press on. That we would trust you. That we would trust that you're good. That we would trust that no matter what happens to us, your word will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. Your will will be done in Tuscaloosa. I pray that we can be a part of it. The ministry that happens here at Emmanuel Baptist Church will be long-lasting. That we would be a bastion of gospel proclamation for many, many many years to come until you return and set all things right. Lord, we long for that day. We echo with John in Scripture, come Lord Jesus. We would much rather be here physically with you in your kingdom. But I pray that you would guide us, that you would lead us, and at times even comfort us And remind us of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.